9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am coming to you from Summit, New Jersey, where my hometown where I grew up, uh, where there is no snow outside. Um, but I think it's somewhat different for our friends in Washington, D.C., which include, at the moment, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and David Sanger of the New York Times and Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. Um, are all of you guys, like, snowed in? We're snow furloughed. We're snow-load. Snow-load. There is snow all around. There is snow all around. And Theodore Geisel was alive, he would be cheering you and doing cartwheels (laughs) across his lawn. Well, the great thing about this one, David, is that because of the snow, OPM shut the government and no one noticed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's like a double government shutdown. That's like a new thing. Well, what it is is... all the people who had to go to work because they weren't furloughed before, they got furloughed today. Wow. Mm-hmm. That Trump is a big, yeah. inter- you know, most people only have one sh- shutdown. He's got two at once. Um, well, uh, you know, and- it's interesting. I don't know if you all noticed this, but but Trump, uh, maybe a Freudian slip, referred to the shutdown as a strike recently. He seems to think that the problem is just that all these people are refusing oh, Rosa, to work. it's so sweet how naive and trusting you are. That actually wasn't a slip up. That was an effort by the president to try and shift blame for the shutdown right. to no, the you're very right, people Corey. who are the you're victims right. of it. I was trying to give him a little credit, thinking maybe he just didn't really understand what was happening, which, which <laughs> you're getting him credit. Trump, by... I feel like there's always a possibility that he's just an idiot. Well, that's not <laughs> just a possibility there. Uh, by the way, um, you guys are like also eager to, and maybe, you know, you're, you're going a little cabin uh, fever going on there, but uh I didn't get to finish my introduction because, of course, we have, as everybody listening knows now, Corey Shockey in London. Are you in London? (laughs) I am indeed in London. I have the luxury of being in my office and in my home all week long, which, as you guys know, is a rarity for me. Um, Well, that is it's and and, uh, you're happy about it, right? I am exceedingly happy about it. Um, She's well, happy about it because we couldn't get her to come come over and help dig us out. Yeah. <laughs> do you dig yourself out, David? Do you have like I, a shovel, or do you have like somebody who comes and digs you out? I have I have a, a, a shovel. I have a power shovel. Snowblower, please, snowblower. No, it's not a snowblower. What's a power it's shovel? It's, it's one of these plug-in things made by Toro. Those inventive Japanese. That actually, it looks like a little, like a little mini snowblower, but it's about the width. It is a snowblower. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> cool. But no, uh, no I'm we really don't, we don't we don't hire people out here to go do it because it turns out that Deep State Radio does not have a plowing division. Not yet. 
It never, it never snows oh, inside the silo. I really object to that. I think that is fake news. If there is anything we are good at here on Deep State Radio, it's plowing people under. And <laughs> shoveling. <laughs> and shoveling. I won't say well, that. Shoveling them in or out. Now, uh, I have to say, one of the things that made me oddly happy over the weekend um, and this reveals the perversity of being trapped inside the deep state, was that Rosa Brooks, she of the great circumspect judgments, actually tweeted out that she thought we were finally getting close to a constitutional crisis. And it's not that I think a constitutional crisis is a good thing, but I've found her holding out on us for so long to be really frustrating um, and I didn't feel she was freaking out quite enough. But yet, you seem, Rosa, to be freaking out a little more. And I'm just oh, wondering. No, why. I'm very calm. I'm, I'm extremely calm, David. I, I'm sure you can tell how calm I am. Yes, um, I yes. can. Um, <laughs> but it's true. I think I, I'm not entirely sure I'm, I'm prepared to go all full fledged constitutional crisis quite yet. But, but as I said, I think we, we took some significant steps closer. Um, and you know, I, I would, I would, I would say that there are two things that have brought us closer. Um, one is just the ongoing shutdown with no end in sight. Uh, you know, when you have a a clash between two of the three uh, branches of government established by our constitution, and apparently no mechanism for for getting out of it, uh, we have a total stalemate. You know, th it could still get resolved <coughs> relatively quickly, maybe, depending, et cetera. There are ways to resolve it. But on the other hand, um, when President Trump said uh, a couple weeks ago, whenever it was, he said, you know, it could go on for weeks, months, even years. <laughs> I, my sense is that he is perfectly happy to let it go on for, for even years. Um, uh, I doubt it will actually come, come to that because we will thankfully have an election in November 2020. Um, but nevertheless, it could go on for quite a long time, and it's already a crisis. It's already a major crisis in terms of the the livelihoods of uh, almost a million Americans, and it's a secondary crisis in terms of service provision for many millions more. Um, so that that's one piece. The the other piece, though, is wait before you finish with that piece. Do you want to give a shout out to your mother for the op ed she wrote? Yes, yes, yes. My mother and my stepfather. Um, wrote an op-ed together, uh, which is in t the New York Times, uh, today is Monday when we're recording this, um, uh, calling for TSA workers to strike. Um, they originally were planning to call for a general strike by everybody across the country, but they decided that maybe the country wasn't quite ready for a, a French-style general strike, so they settled for calling on TSA workers to strike. But I've already registered David Sanger's uh, uh, request, which I will pass along to the organizers of the labor revolution of 2019, uh, which is that the strike wait until after Wednesday because he needs to go to the airport on Wednesday. <laughs> Seems perfectly reasonable, don't you think? That's totally reasonable. No, no, David, the, the revolution will wait for you. Well, the, the alternative is that David can, can finally loosen up the keys for the deep state radio private G5 that would enable Ooh. us to fly around on the road. Yeah. I wouldn't have to go to the airport, okay. you know. It's, it's actually, you're, you got it all wrong. It's a G550, but we'll move on. Um, <laughs> over, 
another development over the weekend, um, and then let me turn to Evelyn first. Wait, you that. haven't gotten to the second reason of the constitutional crisis, although you can come back. To Maybe me that's what that, he's getting to. Um, well, okay, no, go I feel finish. like he's going to use the R word really soon. It is. <laughs> and that's why I was about to use the R word, but go ahead, Rosa. That's well, I'll, I'll just say it really briefly now, and if, you, and if people want to, we can return to it. But, but as, as our listeners uh, know, there were several blockbuster uh, uh, journalistic stories over the last few days, uh, one uh, broken by the New York Times, um, noting that after Comey was fired uh, by Donald Trump from his position as FBI director, that the FBI, that others in the FBI were so so worried that Trump's behavior suggested he might be an agent of the Russian government that they uh, initiated a counterintelligence investigation of the president of the United States. Uh, there was also a revelation in the Washington Post just a couple days later that President Trump had actively sought to keep the details of his meetings with Russian President Vladimir Putin, even from senior members of his own administration going so far at one point as to take the notes of his interpreter uh, so they couldn't be shared with anybody, including his own people. Um, and 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 what does this have to do with constitutional crisis? You know, two things. One, um, I think it's fair to say that in a in a general way, uh, it would pose a a potential constitutional crisis if, in fact, the president of the United States is a an agent of a hostile foreign power. Um, but but number two, the that seems that seems like a reasonable assertion. But 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 the other side of that, right? Um, uh, a lot of commentators have expressed some dismay, and rightly so, about the FBI on its own authority at the career official level opening a counterintelligence investigation of the president. Um, the reason for that is that in a democracy, we, we in our constitutional democracy, we entrust the president of the United States with being the person who decides what's in the U.S.'s national security interest. And to have the president's judgment superseded by the judgment of a bunch of people who weren't elected, you know, you can imagine how that could be done in a really abusive way. You know, imagine, imagine a, a hawkish counterintelligence uh, 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 apparatus in the FBI uh, who were opposed to a president seeking to end a war, for instance, and decided to say, oh, well, it violates U.S. national security. You know, you can see it being done for sort of what we would see as ideological harassment purposes. Um, but because of the other revelations, what else are they supposed to do? So our, our Constitution does not give us an answer to that. You know, there is no there is no constitutional solution to, you know, what is the career bureaucracy supposed to do when there is credible evidence that not, not for just ideological reasons to think that the, the president of the United States is an agent of a hostile power. You know, it, 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 it is, it is, I think, moving rapidly towards crisis uh, because there's no, there's no constitutional answer. There's there, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Well, I'm afraid there's no time left for anybody else to speak. On this. <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> well, it uh, is a crisis, guys. Yeah, yeah, Actually, no. none of the rest of us need to speak because <laughs> Rosa just cleared the center field fence with the ball still rising. <laughs> yep. that, is, that is exactly true. But let's give everybody a shot. Let me start with you, Evelyn, since it does involve uh, the R word. I think that's the R word you meant. And talk a little bit <laughs> yes. about your your sense of these 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 most recent revelations. 
Well, I think the, the one that was most alarming or more alarming to me was the one that came out in the Washington Post about the president trying to keep the details of these meetings that he had with uh, so President Trump trying to keep the details of the meetings with President Putin from his senior staff. I mean, that to me is shocking. And it goes beyond what we learned before, which was bad enough that he didn't take anyone into the meetings. He willfully said, I'm going in there by myself with just the interpreter. I think one thing is important to note, because we have wonky um, listeners who like to really have the edge on the general public. Um, Interpreters' notes are not like notes, recordings of a meeting. Uh, for um, I think most of us have sat in those meetings with interpreters. They scribble something down. They'll scribble a word down as they're interpreting so that they remember, so that they don't forget to say something. It's simultaneous interpretation. It's really hard. And so if they want to make sure that, that they get a certain word, they'll write it down. So it's not a verbatim you know, uh, uh, transcript. But Obviously, it could help someone later saying, well, what do you think, what do you recall they were saying at that point? But the interpreter's brain is actually not wired to recall. Like when you're, I've done some, you know, uh, um, very amateur simultaneous interpretation. And when you're doing it, you're not actually thinking about the subject matter. You're just think the words are, are what you're focused on. It's a very weird kind of um, dynamic. It's not about comprehension. It's just right, because what you're. What you're trying to do is think, what is the Russian term for P-tape? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, all right. <laughs> so there may be words that obviously will trigger something, you know, a memory, or they, obviously they, they will be following some of it consciously in their comprehensive part of their brain, but still it's not the same as notes. So all of us who were, you know, had all these conversations before on Deep State Radio and elsewhere, we were upset that a senior staffer wasn't in the meeting with the president to basically correct anything improper that President Putin said, either on the spot or subsequently, to also make sure that our president didn't promise anything that we then later determined it would be a bad idea to follow through on, or that he, uh, again, didn't get the wrong impression, didn't sign up for something, wasn't misled needlessly, and that we also knew, because the intelligence community and the experts on Russia can parse apart everything that Putin says and use it to feed into the general body of analytic work to find out what the Russian president is thinking and planning, right? And President Trump's not going to pick up on some little word. You know, he may say Kisinau, and the President Trump is not going to know that that's the capital of Moldova, the poorest country in Europe. <laughs> so, um, you know, things like that. That was more alarming to me, frankly, than you, the I love, love the I love the notion that you think he's not going to know the capital when I'm pretty sure he doesn't know what Moldova is. God, you're so right. That's so sad. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, that's like uproariously true. sad, if I can say that. Um, so the, the, other, the other story was, wasn't surprising to me because, again, you know, I'm steeped in, like, what are the Russians trying to do? I was following this in the summer of 2016. At that point, I thought, like, whoa, you got to launch a counterterrorism, a counterintelligence investigation against Trump's team and potentially Trump. So, you know, to, to those of us who were following this, worried about it, it's actually surprising that it took them that long. So th th that's my kind of not very quick take. Uh, well, no, uh, that's a good take. Uh, Corey, as you watch all of this stuff, did you think it was a blockbuster weekend too? Yeah, I did. I mean, the hard thing about the Trump administration is that all of us basically knew this stuff. We just didn't have the the full frontal visual that none of us needed. 
from the Trump administration and its engagement with Russia. Um, and now, because of outstanding reporting by the very media that the president not only denigrates but encourages violence against, um, we understand why he has been so voluble, so unmoored, as more and more of his behavior becomes clear to the public. So I think everybody suspected it from the fact that he won't release his taxes, from the fact that they weirdly pushed the Republican um, convention platform in Russo-philic uh, directions, that all of this stuff, I mean, Max Boot's 18 reasons President Trump might be a Russian agent is a sadly compelling metronomic walk through all of those things. Uh, but I think it's important for a couple of reasons. The first is that this begins to um, force Republicans in Congress to have to look square in the face their complicity in a Manchurian candidate scenario where the president of the United States could very well be a foreign agent. And the second, the question all of us should be pressing all of our public officials to answer is, how would you know the difference? Is there any difference between the actions President Trump undertakes and what he would do if he were a Russian agent? I think all of us should have a drumbeat of that in challenging commentary because I watched the minority speaker uh, or the minority leader in the House start to defend the president and several other Republicans were making very dangerous, complicit statements mm -hmm. in the media over the weekend. Well, it's interesting because we had this story from the New York Times um, about the FBI and we had the story from the Washington Post. But um, and, and then on top of that, we had the um, uh, uh, also stories like, um, you know, Trump had asked Mattis to figure out a way to you know, blow up Iranian fast boats and, and, and so on and so forth. So all this stuff happens over the weekend. Not a peep, David, out of the Republicans. No, the silence has been deafening. Um, let's sort of take them in order because the, quest, the big question is, where do these advance the story and where do they intersect with the big thing that's coming, which is the Mueller report, which we now think may be, you know, a month or two away. So the first is uh, my colleagues' uh, great reporting on the FBI starting up this investigation right at, around the time that, that um, Comey is fired, uh, looking at the question of whether the president is acting on behalf of the Russians. You have to read it with some care because it does not say necessarily that he is doing so knowingly. There's always the possibility of the unwitting agent piece of this. But then you got to the Washington Post story with the refusal to uh, allow the interpreter to keep her notes. And that would take you to the question that he had something to hide in his dealings with Putin. So on the first question, the issue of whether or not he is acting on behalf of the Russians either knowingly or de facto, 
is essentially the central question of the Mueller investigation, right? That's that's the core question we're trying to get at. And while it's fascinating that the FBI opened the investigation, at this point, there's so much water under the bridge. There's so many people we know within the, the Trump campaign who have dealt with Russia. There are so many bits and pieces of evidence from the Trump Tower meeting to um, uh, Trump's own claims to me and to other reporters that he should be lifting sanctions against Russia that were put in after the annexing of Crimea. All of those add up to the one thing we need to hear from Mueller, and that is, was he a knowing or unknowing agent of Russian influence? And that really is going to be the dividing line for the Republican Party. I'm not sure if Mueller came out with an affirmative conclusion there. I'm not sure how Republicans could stick with him. But I have to say, every time we've said that in the past, Republicans have stuck with him. Uh, On the question of the meetings with Putin, it's bizarre behavior. Every other president I've covered, as soon as they had a one-on-one meeting with a um, foreign leader, not even necessarily just Vladimir Putin, they would gather a couple of top aides, they would have them take notes or run a tape recorder while he he remembered everything that went on in the conversation. Then there'd be a written memo back, he'd fix that up, add in things, and there would be a record. What happened here? Dan Coates told us five days after the Putin meeting, he had still gotten no readout. He's the director of national intelligence. So clearly, whatever it is, the president didn't want to talk about what he said at Helsinki. It was a little bit different in the meeting in Hamburg, which was the first major meeting they had, where the president did talk about it. Rex Tillerson was sitting in on it. The president actually called me right after that meeting uh, took place and gave me a, a interesting take on the thing that uh, Putin must have been right, that the Russians um, could not have done the, uh, the hack against the Democrats because they were so good they never would have been caught. He seemed very eager to believe that. Um, so uh, I'm not sure that each meeting with Putin actually got treated the same way. And the one that's really critically important is what happened at Helsinki. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, that, that one's huge. D- yeah, it's, it's, it seems huge and, and all the more mysterious with each passing day. Rosa, as you talk about constitutional crises, though, do you worry that we're overemphasizing the Russia crisis? I mean, there are, you know, I mean, if the Russia crisis didn't exist, the emoluments crisis would exist. If that didn't exist, the uh, the corruption of the Trump organization uh, or the obstruction of justice or uh, the uh, violation of the rights of people at the border or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There well, are a lot of different crises going on. There are here. a lot of different crises. I'm, I'm just being a pedantic law professor, say not all of them are constitutional crises. I mean, I mean, they're all crises of different sorts, ranging from human rights and humanitarian crises to uh, crises of, of democracy in a broader way. And, and I do actually think we get, you know, we do all get too hung up on on the Constitution, which frankly, we should care a little bit less about than we do. You know, we treat the Constitution like, 
you know, God handed it to Moses, you know, from a burning bush or something, as opposed to treating it. When God handed it to Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) Or God handed it to Alexander (laughs) Hamilton out of burning bush um, while, while, while doing a little hip hop performance. Um, You know, it's a, it's a human document. It's, it's uh, almost 250 years old. Um, It was designed in a different era for a much different nation, uh, there are all kinds of things that the Constitution is just fine with that we today would generally say, well, yeah, but that's that's pretty horrible. And there were plenty of things that the Constitution was not fine with that today we say are, are morally required. So, so I actually don't, on some level, I don't really care when something is a constitutional crisis. A, a, a regular old crisis is plenty for me. Um, but I think, you know, if it, to, to be pedantic, you know, it's, it is important to sort of make the distinction between a crisis in the sense of something that we consider to be really bad going on, bad, dangerous, bad for democracy, bad for our national security, versus a crisis that our political system by its nature is, is sort of not equipped to handle. You know, so just, uh, just to give only one example, right, the, the emoluments crisis, uh, well, that's working its way through the courts. You know, it becomes a constitutional crisis if and when a court says, President Trump, you must do thus and such. And he says, no, I won't. Then then you get to constitutional crisis land. But at the moment, you know, you've got the process is is the process of challenging it is going forward in in a constitutional context. Um, So I'm going to I'm going to. I'm going to stick with my narrow understanding of constitutional crisis, but but concede the point, David, that if you want to get rid of the term constitutional, you can find plenty of crises. Can I pile one other one other distinction on, which is we have a fair amount of American history dealing with terrible stuff, slavery, um, corruption, buying votes. We have to my knowledge, no American history of dealing with the potential for the commander in chief and the president of the United States to be a foreign agent of another government. And, and that's why this makes, that's why this one feels of such earth shaking magnitude, because we actually have some experience with overcoming the terrible stuff we know our government's capable of doing and has done, and we have remediation to fix it. This is, I think, objectively a harder um, crisis because the courts actually can't solve this for us. Uh, This has got to be a a political solution, and the morass that, that Russia, excuse me, that Rosa rightly identified of of civil servants having to make a judgment about an elected political leader and the discomfort all of us have with that. I think that's why this one feels so enormous to me. You know, to to, um, advertise um, Corey's book along the way here, at various moments in American history, including before the period that Corey covered in her brilliant book, there was a lot of suspicion about American politicians and sometimes presidents being too cozy with the British, right? Because our politics were dominated, particularly before the Civil War, in conflicts with Canada and you know so forth and so on. And so in an odd way, the founders envisioned this problem 
but they didn't necessarily envision it in the context in which we're now playing it out. A lot of complaints about Jefferson being too biased in favor of the French, and but for a French ambassador overplaying his hand in the hinterlands, um, we might have had a very different reaction to a lot of, of French government uh, attitudes in the in the early years of the republic. I agree with David. And I will say this: there is nothing Donald Trump has done so far that makes us believe that he is an agent working on behalf of the French. Yeah. Or any other government friendly to the United States. Right. <laughs> Maybe well, Poland. Maybe Poland. Um, yeah, well, that's all, they're all of a piece. But Evelyn, you know, one of the elements of this thing now is that there seems to be some movement afoot um, by members of Congress to seek the notes of these meetings um, with Putin and and so forth. And, and, I, and, I, and I suppose that's a, a key question of this. You know, the president is then going to say, um, you know, this is, that, you know, the executive privilege is involved. This is, you know, you can't go and get into our private notes and so, and so on and so forth. And it echoes a little bit this issue that that was just brought up, which is if the president is the problem, what alternative is there to civil servants stepping up and 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 saving the day, right? And yeah. and and in in the same case, you know, you know, should should presidential privilege um, be allowed to be invoked if the president is 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 suspect? Well, you are leading the witness. No, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think obviously uh, civil servants and those who even political appointees. I mean, we saw the New York Times article, which was not necessarily a profile in courage. I think we debated that at the time, but uh, still, it was somebody giving us a sense that there was there were problems afoot in the Trump administration and with the president himself. Um, so that so the civil servants and the political folks need to stand up and be counted and speak out. Uh, obviously, Congress needs to assert itself. We saw that the Republican leadership was unwilling to do this. So now that we have Democrats leading in the House, they're going to attempt to get these notes. It is unprecedented, but you know, it's I mean, it could end up being sort of like the Nixon tapes, you know. I mean, they didn't want to turn those over either, right? Um, but they ultimately they had to. And maybe the courts will get involved and the courts will um, be, I, I don't predict that they will fall on the side of the president, even though, of course, a lot of uh, people will get agitated because of the Bush, the, the Bush, the Trump appointments to the, the court. But I think that um, Justice Roberts is a straight shooter. You know, he may be a conservative, but he's a straight jurist. And so, um, you know, I think that that these things play out. I mean, I, I'm friends with Elliot Richardson's son um, and daughter-in-law. And, you know, if you recall that timeline, it took some time. And, and it also took the president losing popularity. And Republicans took a long time also to, you know, come around. I, I frankly was surprised this weekend that Lindsey Graham was so, so very um, partisan in the comments that he made. Um, I expected better from someone like him, given his background and the fact that he, you know, he's a lawyer and and ultimately he's going to be on the wrong an, side. <laughs> can I make an argument on the other side of this? 
Um, Pro-Russian? <laughs> no, pro-executive privilege for the president to be able to conduct American foreign policy um, uh, out of constant supervision by the Congress and the public. As troubling as President Trump's behavior is to me, um, there's a reason people in the White House can't be subpoenaed by Congress, and it's because the president has the right to be a separate branch of the American government, and he's explicitly given the authority to conduct American foreign policy. Well, that's true, but what if the foreign policy he's conducting um, is, uh, you know, against the interests of the United States? I, I think that could be made on quite a number of counts of Donald Trump's foreign policy, but I think forcing a diplomatic interpreter to turn over notes made in a private executive branch meeting um, for me, that crosses the line. I wouldn't do it to a Democratic president. I wouldn't do it to, I think there are some private conversations that heads of state deserve to have shielded um, from scrutiny unless it can be proven that what they are doing is unconstitutional. Well, let me, also, let me... we do not know that those notes still exist. Let's just, like, before we go... Yeah. Too far yeah, down no, the line. My suspicion is they probably don't. Okay, well that's 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 possible, but there may be other. But again, they're not notes. They're not notes. They're interpreter scribblings. We don't. I wouldn't call them. I think it's a little bit. Well, we don't. We don't even know. Right. I think it's going too far contain. to think that they're notes. Okay, but let me let me suggest this, and I'll ask Rosa to be my lawyer on this. But uh, unbeknownst to all of you, every single day I study the law. Can't afford rates. Every yeah, every single day I study the law carefully by watching at least one episode of Law and Order, um, or Law and Order SVU. And um, you know, you, you can't barge into somebody's house without a warrant, and you can't get a warrant unless there is some sort of. Uh, well, you can barge into somebody's house without a warrant uh, if there are exigent circumstances. Okay. That, well, th th I'm getting to the point. <laughs> Ooh, of okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's Officer Brooks. Uh, don't if she's in your neighborhood. <laughs> she's she's the one outside your door going. I think I hear somebody calling for yeah, help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but the 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 point I was getting at was, but if there is a suspicion of wrongdoing, then you can. You know that there there is a presumption under the law that protections provide up to a point. Is, is that is that not the case? I mean, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not I'm not well, sure about the analogy. But but well, but, I mean, I guess yeah, my I mean, point is, why should the president have more protections than anybody else? Well, there. So I'll give you uh, a reason because, why, and because uh, he's the president, right? Corey's. Gonna, I mean, I mean, there there are two answers to that. You know, the the sort of traditionalist answer <laughs> is. The Constitution gives us a remedy, and it's a political remedy, and it's called impeachment. And if uh, the majority of the U.S. Senate is not interested in voting in favor of impeachment, um, well, they're democratically elected, so-called. I mean, they're not entirely, as we know, given given the you know two senators per state. It's certainly not one person, one vote. But but that's our system, you know. And and if if our system, if if in our system. 
uh, the elected members of Congress choose not to invoke that political remedy, we have to presume that they are doing what the people want them to do and what the people elected them to do. And if they are not, in fact, doing what the people want them to do and elected them to do, then the people can fix that in the next election by voting the bums out of office, you know, and that you don't get to have uh, mechanisms outside of that process, no matter how horrifically awful the president is, even, you know, even if the president does fulfill his uh, threat to shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, um, you know, that that the only remedy our Constitution provides is impeachment. Um, so, you know, suck it up is that answer. I mean, but but that being said, David, you know, you're you're in some ways you're asking a question that's that's more in the realm of ethics and morality, you know, and, and it relates to things like, you know, when or is it appropriate for people to be whistleblowers um, and when are leaks uh, morally excusable or even morally required, you know, that presumably most of us whatever we, whatever our position on constitutional issues, most of us would say that, you know, hypothetically, let's say that interpreter is sitting at the meeting with, with Trump and Putin, at which Trump, you know, goes full Manchurian candidate, gets a glazed look in his eye and says, yes, Vladimir, I will do your bidding. You know, is that interpreter justified in moral terms and saying, oh my God, everybody, you need to know this? You know, I think most of us would say, yeah, sure, screw the constitution. Yeah, well, I, you know, I would, I would say that, David, it's a little bit ironic here that we're at the moment where the government is saying, we can listen in and save everything from every phone conversation from every person, uh, in case we need it later on. But, you know, there is a president, and there's 15 different smoking guns of collusion, but uh, he's going to get all these protections honored. Well, you know, for all the good reasons that Corey laid out before, I think you do need to honor those protections. And I think one way we get in, in trouble in our government is we don't ask the question, um, if you vote for this now because of the current conditions, how is that going to blow back on you later on? Maybe when you have a very different president of very different uh, uh, instincts. And what we've seen happen from in everything from the rules in uh, the Senate about how many votes are required in order to actually make something happen to uh, privacy and constitutional questions is we have found that regularly these do blow, blow back. But that doesn't worry me that much here because I'm pretty well convinced, given what you're seeing show up in The Times, The Post, The Wall Street Journal, what you're seeing Mueller do, the specificity of the Mueller uh, indictments that you've seen so far, and the two to look at here are his um, uh, indictment of the Internet Research Agency and of the GRU, the Russian Intelligence Group, you realize that he's got incredibly broad um, capabilities to get at things, and that the technological age we live in has meant that we all leave much more digital dust about our meetings, our conversations, and so forth than we did if you were conducting the same investigation 25 years ago. And so I, I don't think I would overly think out here what it is that the president can and cannot withhold, because I think the chances that Mueller's getting 90% of what he needs is probably pretty high. Well, there's also, you know, I mean, I. I don't want to confuse things, and we only have a couple of minutes here, but, you know, Evelyn, one of the things that struck me, apropos of David's point of digital dust, 
um, is that we're not the only intelligence service playing in this game. Right. And, and that the, you know, the, the, the five eyes, there's still four other eyes. There's a lot of other people out there. Presumably they're coming up with stuff. And the right. question becomes, how do they treat that? And with whom do they, you know, and, and how do they whistle blow? And how do they protect themselves? And what do they know? And how do we get a hold of that? And, you know, et cetera. Well, some of it's been in the media already. So we have the Dutch. Um, they were doing very good work on Russian interference. Um, I don't remember now off the top of my head the details of that story, but it was a very long uh, account of what they did and how they knew what the Russians were up to. I think the, in the, the details of that story is they were inside the um, GRU hackers headquarters. Uh, right. And, and we wrote about it at, at, at some length. It was a pretty remarkable case. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it wasn't just, uh, yes. So the Dutch were very helpful. And of course the media got that story. And as David said, it reported it very well and very thoroughly. We also know from the media that the British had access to intelligence re uh, referring, regarding what the Russians were doing. We can imagine many other foreign intelligence services did, including the Israelis. Now the Israelis probably are no longer sharing everything with us because of course, we know that President Trump shared their intelligence with the Russian ambassador and the Russian foreign minister in the Oval Office. And that, of course, is one of the things that finally was the final straw that led the FBI to open the investigation against him, the counterintelligence investigation. So, yes, I think what's interesting is that the larger you know, global intelligence community and other foreign countries have been quiet. But I think um, we will be hearing more from them probably after the Mueller investigation is complete. But the ones that aren't speaking, you know, that's because they can leverage this information to their benefit. And I'm thinking now of the Middle Eastern countries, for example. I mean, they may even, for all we know, they may even be saying to Jared Kushner, look, we know this. We have a transcript of X or Y, the Russians saying they did this with you guys, you know. Um, so you you cough up you know, whatever it is that the Saudis want, uh, make sure that our crown prince can stay in place and don't, don't, you know, let the, let the, the scandal quote unquote subside. So over the murder of the journalist Khashoggi. So I, I think it, that's, that's a disturbing element of it. And I probably should have started with that because foreign intelligence agencies, you know, I, I assume starting off that we're talking about allied ones, but the ones that are not our allies, our adversaries can use this information against us, against specifically the president. Well, that's a very thought-provoking place to end this conversation. Um, uh, we'll continue with many of these themes in the next issue of De uh, episode of Deep State Radio, which will come out a little bit later this week. Although, of course, if you're a subscriber to Deep State Radio, you can listen to it right now because you get everything in real time. And if you're not a subscriber to Deep State Radio, what the heck is wrong with you? I mean, think of how great all this is. And if you subscribe, you provide a little bit more support. And then we can buy the G5 that David mentioned that we really need and the deep state snowblowers that we need and all the other kinds of things uh, that are important <laughs> to, grow, to, to, to grow this this enterprise and to keep it thriving for you. Because after all, we do this for you. Um, uh, so go to deepstateradionetwork.com, look at all of this other stuff, tune into some of our other features like, uh, Washington for beautiful people, uh, or our national security magazine, where I just had a great conversation with general Mark Hurtling. Um, 
uh, and have other great ones coming up, including a bunch with uh, upcoming 2020 presidential candidates. Uh, there's a lot there going on. So go join, support, come back for the next episode uh, and join me in thanking Corey and Rosa and Evelyn and David. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find